Look, how do you live with the idea kind of hanging over your head that you could get cancer again? At that point, I mean, I could get hit by a car. I live in Philadelphia. There's a lot of bad <laughs> things that could happen to me here. Um, I would say with that, it's definitely a driver just to make sure like I'm doing all the right things to lower that chance. Just making sure like if I have it coming back, I'll make sure that, you know, I am catching it as early as possible. So I know it's in me. I know it wants to come back, but I'm going to do everything to make sure it doesn't. From Haymakers for Hope, this is not every fight ends at the bell. Haymakers for Hope exists to knock out cancer the only way we know how. Fighting for a cure through charity boxing. Thanks to generous supporters and more than 1,200 ass-kicking do-gooders, Haymakers has raised over $25 million for cancer research, care, awareness, and survivorship. But the March Towards a Cure continues long after the last bell of each event. I'm Julie Kelly. I'm Todd Buster Paris. We know firsthand because we are not just your hosts, we are also survivors. On this podcast, we will highlight the stories of fighters, survivors, organizations, and supporters. Not every fight ends at the bell. Round one. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. So with us today is Luke Gambale. Luke will be fighting in the Liberty Bell Brawl at the Fillmore Philadelphia, which takes place April 24th. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate y'all having me. It is great having you here. You have such an interesting story, and I'm looking forward to getting sort of down the road and talking more about your, really your connection to the cause. First, though, I'd like to discuss with you a little bit about your boxing and how did you learn about Haymakers for Hope? Yeah, so it was actually a few months ago. I was in New York on a work trip, and uh turns out now there's actually two uh, colleagues of mine have done Haymakers for Hope, but we were doing kind of soft intros as we were going through a training, and Chris Trott, who fought in one of the Boston Haymakers for Hope, he brought up, he's like, I, I did an amateur boxing fight. And I'm like, oh, it's awesome. Like, definitely something, you know, I've never done, thought it'd be pretty cool. So uh, that was my first time meeting Chris in person. We got to talking a little bit about it. He kind of told me about it, and, and we'll probably talk about it more, but cancer and all that definitely hits really close to home with me. So immediately I was like, hey, I got to do something like that. I don't live in Boston. He's like, I think it's coming back to Philadelphia. So, you know, next thing, you know, I had my uh, entry in, and, and now I'm starting doing the training. That always fascinates me. So the way, so you're talking to a colleague about, and they, they say, you know, yeah, I did this amateur fight. You find that interesting. It's a big leap from wanting to try amateur boxing to signing up to have your first competitive boxing match. So have you had any boxing prior to this? Very little. So I played college football. Um, I was a defensive lineman. So graduated, I was, you know, 270, 280 pounds and that's all great when you're playing football, but the second, you know, you're not playing football, you're just a big guy carrying too much weight. So uh, I lived in Newport, Rhode Island at the time. And, and there was a guy, Jesse, who had like a box fit gym. So did that briefly and kind of just was doing that to lose some weight, but nothing at a competitive fighting level, just really trying to, you know, get that high intensity training, did that quickly, enjoyed it, but then kind of life rolled on and, and that's, you know, nine, 10 years ago. So quite a gap about a decade where I never had a glove on or anything like that. Did you continue boxing after that? I did not. No. I no. Uh, Okay. Yeah, I would say my athletic career really shut down probably back then and did a little bit in between like 
the basic weightlifting and, and trying to, you know, stay looking like I go to the gym or look like I used to play a sport, but yeah, no, no boxing. And Luke, where do you box out of now? So did, and was this a gym that you belong to or Haymakers hooked you up with a gym? Yeah. Haymakers hooked me up with the gym. It actually worked out perfectly. So Malik Jackson gym, uh, right on second street, super close to the Fillmore, but I live in that neighborhood. So I've probably walked my dog past it hundreds of times. I've peeked in over the years, but yeah, never signed up, never went into the gym before, but I've been in there a couple of weeks now. What kind of dog do you have? I have a bloodhound. Yeah, oh, no kidding. Nine in March. Yeah. Hank. Hank, the bloodhound. So how has training been going? It's been awesome. So there's four of us who are doing haymakers who are out of there and we've really done everything together so far. So it, it's been really great kind of have the, the whole team Malik thing going on and all in there working together, doing a little bit of sparring training. So it's been great. What is the whole team Malik theme going on? What does that mean? Just that we're not looking at it that we're, you know, four people in the same gym that, you know, we're all just going to train out of there. We know none of us are going to be fighting each other. So it's like, hey, let's all get better together. Let's kind of time up our schedules. It's worked out. We all kind of decided on like the the 6 a.m. classes. And even this morning, we were all there just for some open gym. So I want to see those three win. I don't know outside of the sparring event and media day if I'll meet the other ones. So those will be the three I'm rooting for the hardest. So just want to make sure as I'm getting better, they're getting better. And we go four now. Yeah. Having training partners in a gym with you, especially that are going through the exact same thing, you know, you're going from zero to 60. It's definitely an accelerated program for your first amateur boxing. So to have other people with you going through the exact, exact same training regimen, same frustrations, maybe same fears, then also fundraising and Mm -hmm. having that on your shoulders is really, really helpful. Has there been anything that you have found to be or surprisingly challenging for you in terms of training? Just really picking it up from zero. So, I mean, I, I feel like I had a good base from a conditioning level. I, uh, I had just run my first marathon back in November. So I was like, yeah, I have a good base there. But, you know, overall, I'm just trying to get back to where I was years ago before I had some major health issues. So it was really just, you know, I'm trying to build strength, build a boxing and, and, and really put everything together. So I would say, you know, three weeks ago, I was like, I might've stepped in, you know, something I might not have or shouldn't have, but I'd say each class, I feel a little bit better, more confident. And to your point, you know, seeing three other people kind of had the the same things, a certain drills tough for them. And I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy or I'm not, you know, super behind on this. Like we're all kind of getting better together. So I, I would say, I mean, that's the point. Malik's an awesome coach and, and he kind of steps aside and makes sure that, uh, you know, if there's something we're doing wrong, he corrects it. So it's like any sport. I mean, first time I played football, I couldn't get in a three-point stance. And, you know, then I played in college. So I think uh, I don't have the same, you know, years to get better, but I'm going to do my best to do it in the next couple of months. One of the things for Haymakers is obviously the fundraising. There's a guy at a gym that I work at. I'm trying to get him into Haymakers. And his biggest concern is the fundraising. That's his major hangup. Everything else he's fine with, the fighting, the getting hit, it's the fundraising. And a couple other people that I've spoken with have a similar kind of that quick, like sucking in of air. How have you found, because I looked at your, you've, you've raised some good money so far. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your feelings about it before signing up and then currently where you are with fundraising? Yeah. I mean, I I think definitely, you know, we all pledge to raise a good amount of money and, and that can be a little bit daunting, but 
I think, you know, a lot of us have pretty big networks and, and we've been, you know, whether you've had multiple schools you've went to or you've had, you know, different career changes, you meet a lot of people along the way and this is all tied to cancer. And unfortunately, everyone has a tie to cancer. And I think it, it kind of hits home for everybody. So I think it's really if you push it and if, if you look at training, you got to do that hard, do the donations and, and try to, you know, get those as well, just as hard. But there's people out there who want to support something that goes to a good cause. So I don't want to say I'm lucky that I had cancer, but I think it's a little bit easier to ask people, Hey, donate to this. It's not going to me. It's not a GoFundMe for, you know, anything personal. I was lucky enough to never have to do that, but Hey, through me, I'm going to put myself through this tough, you know, exciting event and let's put it towards a good cause. So I think with that, I've gotten a nice little bump from the start. Everyone that I've spoken with about fundraising that is either in and raising or post, they're done with their fight, they've raised their money. There's this sort of super relaxed, like, yeah, you know, it's just $10,000 here, you know, raise this there. It's before you signed up. So as you're filling out the application and you get to that part about fundraising, did you have a moment of, ooh, yeah, I, I would say absolutely. I'm, I know I uh, I have two brothers. I texted both of them like, you guys think I could do this? You think I can pull it off? And they're like, yeah, we'll get you there. We'll figure it out. So with that, I was like, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm going to be in that ring in April. Uh, I'll figure out a way to get the money there at some point. And I think you know you can get creative with it. I haven't gotten creative yet. Like I've kind of just slowly, whether it's Instagram or, or or talk to people at work or you know some of my close friends and be like, hey, can you share this? Recently, I just put it on LinkedIn, which I got a little bit of bump. But I think there's a lot of different ways. Whether it's you know find a, a bar restaurant that can kind of pump it up and, and do donations, or you know I've heard people selling T-shirts and merch and things like that. So. I think, you know, you can continually just kind of roll it out and, and the base number at least probably is pretty attainable for most people. You get a few people who, who come out of the woodwork. There's donations I've gotten from people I haven't talked to in 10 years and I don't even know how they saw I was doing it. So with that, you know, I, I feel pretty good about it. I think, you know, most people will, will get there. When you say people come out of the woodwork, we hear that all the time because, and I think a lot of it is because what you're doing is so extraordinary. You know, there's so many ways to raise money for a mission that you care about or a disease that you care about, or you can do anything to raise money, but there's something extraordinary for a person to take on a challenge, both physical and emotional and, you know, the high fundraising total and step in a ring in front of close to 2000 people and to really put yourself out there it just resonates with people on another level that a marathon does or a triathlon. Um, not that those things aren't difficult. I've done both. They're miserable as far as I'm concerned, but I personally would rather get punched in the face. That's how much I dislike those events. However, at the very end, the core, the, what drove me was to raise the money. But the sport of boxing is it has this like this romantic kind of attachment where people realize how difficult and what you're doing, you're putting yourself out there and people come out of the woodwork because it's inspiring and people are in awe that you're, you're doing this and you're doing this not just for the challenge, you're doing it to raise money and especially with your backstory. Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell is presented by Haymakers for Hope. To donate, sponsor, attend an event, or better yet, to sign up to be one of our ass-kicking do-gooders, visit haymakersforhope.org. Round two.
you had mentioned earlier before you had some health problems. Um, would you mind just sharing with us what those, you know, health problems were? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I could stretch that forever, but try to give you a little bit of a, a summarized background. So August 21, not too long ago, I was diagnosed with stage 3B bowel cancer. So it was not colon cancer, but it was in my small intestines. Definitely, you know, life kind of got away from me as, as, you know, my 27, 28, 29, I just didn't feel the same. And, and definitely, you know, as I said, I wasn't in the gym as much, things like that. I was just exhausted. And, and I chalked it up like, Hey, I was an athlete when I was younger. Now I'm just, you know, an overly worked working two jobs or, or, or working, you know, the, the 10, 12 hour days kind of let things go. So the one thing I would call out is like, I'm the poster boy for someone who doesn't go to the doctor, doesn't get checked and, and doesn't, you know, do the routine blood work. And everyone kind of has in their head, like, yeah, maybe something's wrong, but it's not cancer, not me. You know, what are the odds? So again, long story short, had some health issues, definitely had quite a bit of symptoms that, you know, not are directly tied to that cancer, but are de definitely tied to, you know, some serious, serious issues. Ended up getting some blood work, had hemoglobin that was uh, a 4.1, which I didn't know what that was at the time, but apparently that's pretty bad. So ended up in the hospital, found that I had, a, I think it was a seven centimeter tumor across my intestines. Wow. Luke, I just want to, uh, I'm going to pause you here for one sec, because yeah. you go from having blood tests done Yep. to being in the hospital. Did something happen in between or was it the test and they go, oh, get to the hospital? Like what happened there? Yeah. So kind of how I found out, like I said, I had a few things kind of pop up over time that I knew like were not right. I actually passed out at a Sturgill Simpson concert that I was at with my brothers. Well, that's because you were at a Sturgill Simpson concert. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and I remember like telling them like, Hey, I keep getting like super lightheaded. I'm at a concert. I couldn't sit down. And my older brother's like carrying me out, like who punched him? Thought like I got in a fight. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, nah, I just like went out and uh, kept going on, kept going on. People at work at the time, I, I was an operations manager at, at a pretty big distribution site. People are like, hey, you don't look great. Like you look green. And I would just be like, hey, it's because I work longer hours than you. I don't know the last time I saw the sun. <laughs> Keeps going. And, and then the, the biggest thing is like every day I get to work and my ankles just start to feel so heavy. And like, by the end of the day, I would get home and take like my dress socks off. And like, you could just see my ankle wow. was like normal size. And then my calf is like blown up. So I'm like, all right, something's wrong here. Mm. So actually it's in the summer. I'm sitting out at the pool. I FaceTime uh, one of my best friends whose wife used to work at Mass General in Boston. She no longer did, but I'm like, on FaceTime and I'm asking her, her name's Alyssa. And I'm like, Hey, can you look at my feet? Like, does this look like crazy bad? And she's like, yeah, you shouldn't go to like a hospital. Like, she's like, I can't give you like medical advice, but go. So go to an urgent care. I hadn't been to the doctor in years. I go in they're They're checking me for all different things. And the first thing they come up with is like, I have a heart murmur. And like, you know, you have a heart murmur. They're doing a bunch of tests. And I'm like, I don't have a heart murmur. I've cleared, you know, college physicals. Like I've never had heart issues. So they sent me home. So I don't know if it was like mental over the next like couple of weeks, but I was like, okay, something's wrong with me. But at that point, like I went from like being out walking my dog, working every day, just being like, all right, it's like taking me 10 cups of coffee to get out of bed. So they then send me to see a, uh, like a heart specialist. And he's like, we're going to put you through a stress test, do all this. And uh, he's like, I need you to do some blood work. 
So at the, I worked at Pepsi at the time and um, that building so large that we had a physician in house. So she was like, Hey, I can do all your blood work for you. Like just come in show me what they need tested. So I had her do the blood and, and I am terrified of needles. Like that's number one fear it's needles or, or spiders. <laughs> so she does the blood work. And this is, I think August 2nd of, of 2021, August 4th, I'm actually flying to Austin, Texas for the, at the time, the fiance of Alyssa, who had told me to originally go. So that morning we're over at the, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles training camp. We had just brought them on as a partner and my phone's blowing up from this physician. And she's mm. like, Hey, you need to rush to a hospital now. And I'm like, okay, like I'll go after work. And she's like, no, like this is some of the worst blood work like I've ever seen. Oh, geez. So at that point I'm like, Oh man, like I, I, I let something go too long. So I head over. Luckily, uh, I had managed uh, the University of Penn, like in my district at the time. And I was like, I'm familiar with that hospital. I'll just go there, go over there, check in, walk up to the front. I'm like, hey, I was told to come here. I was told my hemoglobin's a 4.1. And they're kind of like, you mean 14.1? And I'm like, I don't know. It says 4.1. So they take me in the back, take some blood, which I'm all shaken up about. I'm sitting there kind of joking in, in the uh, the lobby and I see a wheel, wheelchair come out. I'm like, oh, oh, that's definitely wow. for me. And this is like mid COVID still. So the room's packed, but immediately they rush over to me. They're like, Hey, you got to get in the wheelchair. I'm like, I'll walk in the back. They're like, no, you need to sit in this wheelchair. So take me in the back and they're going through everything. There's specialists all walking in they're throwing out like all crazy things. So I'm kind of shaking up at this point. Is there a chance you have HIV? Is there a chance you have hepatitis? And I'm like, I hope not. I live a pretty like clean life. So finally, I, I think they did a, a CAT scan, came back in. They're like, hey, we, we found a mass, took me upstairs. And, and at that point, they were like, hey, before we do anything, we had to get blood in your body. I think I had 13 blood transfusions in like two days. Keep doing scans, all that. So this is all, this is all happening so fast, so quick. You oh, have yeah. no this time to wrap your head around any of it. I'm like, I'm already up there. Then I'm calling people. I'm like, Hey, I'm in the hospital. I have cancer. Originally they, they thought I had lymphoma. So I'm like, I don't even know what's going on. I guess like I'm living in university of Penn hospital for the next couple of days, getting, um, you know, consistent, just bags of blood and iron. They're like, we can't do anything until you get over like a seven hemoglobin. Wow. Then they go in and, and do a uh, endoscopy colonoscopy, trying to find like, what actually this tumor is, biopsy it. I kind of get transferred over to the oncology team, meet my oncologist. They figure out what type of cancer it is. And, and at that point, I was like, listen, I don't want to know anything else. Like, just tell me when I have to show up for treatment. What do I got to do? Am I going to die this week? Okay, let's go. So went home at that point for, I think, about a week before I was going to start chemo actually came back that day for chemo and I had already bled out all that new blood. So I was back to a 4.1. I'm sorry, what do you mean bled out all that blood? That I don't know too much about, but somehow all this blood was just disappearing. It was going somewhere. Yeah, it was going somewhere. Oh, not that wow. I could see that. That was not one of the symptoms that, that I noticed. Like it wasn't like the typical, like, Hey, you see blood coming out of you. But I went from, I think, that seven back down to a 4.1. They're like, we can't even give you a chemo today. And at this point, you didn't even know what cancer it was. You just knew that there was a mass and that yeah. you had cancer. I knew where it was. 
I didn't know what stage it was. I didn't want to know what stage it was because mm-hmm. I'm a Google guy. You start plugging in stages and all that. The percentages don't look great. And right. I'm just like, of course, Hey, I'm going to figure this out. Luckily the doctor's like, you are very healthy outside of having cancer. Everything else seemed good. My heart was actually great. So it was like, all right, let's do it. And uh, they took a really aggressive approach. So once I got enough blood back in me, I, I went on a chemo. I did three different chemos, two I would do in the uh, hospital. And then they'd send me home with a, a pump. I had one of the ports put in, would run that for three days and then come back every, I think every 13 days, roughly every two weeks. So I did that for a while. Then they, they did uh, scans again. Everything was going well. Never lost my hair. I would sit out back. I, I moved in with my older brother in Mays Landing. He's got a huge yard. So Hank could be there and I didn't have to walk him. And honestly, I went out of work and I was just getting tan, hanging out by his pool through August and September. Nice. And I was like, yeah, I was like, this isn't that bad. You know? <laughs> um, Cancer's kind of fun. Yeah, I was like, it, it could be worse from, <laughs> from what I had read. And, and mm. uh, you know, it was definitely rough. I started to get some of the side effects. And then uh, during that time period, I also got tested for Lynch syndrome, which is a genetic predisposition or mutation that, that definitely increases your chance of having cancer. And uh, tested positive for that. That had ran in my family. So it wasn't a, a huge shocker. But with that, kind of then fell into my benefit because I already had cancer. My oncologist kind of broke it down where there were some new treatments, immunotherapy that had shown to be a, a little bit better against some of these Lynch syndrome cancers versus, you know, your traditional. So that was kind of like, hopefully it's Lynch, although it sucks that I've Lynch. And all during that same time period, like they were trying to figure out, could I get surgery? They really told me that like, unless things change, like you're incurable, like you're just going to be on treatment the rest of your life. That was probably the toughest thing for me to hear where I was like, all right, I'm 30 at the time. I'm going to have cancer for the rest of my life. So here's the the question here is for the rest of your life, what is that the next three years? Is that the next 30 years, 40 years? Like, do you know, did they have a a sense of that? There wasn't really a, uh, like I was never really explained that because, so I did eventually find out what stage I was. I looked in my portal one night, so I had stage three B. So I had the tumor, it had spread to my lymph nodes, but there was no other major organ. So with that, you know, statistically, like I was kind of right at that point where it's like, I'm not terminal. It hasn't, you know, gotten to my pancreas. It hasn't gotten to my liver. It's not my brain. So I felt good. I was like, if we can stop it here, if I can maintain here, like, yeah, maybe I'll live, you know, quite a long time on this immunotherapy. It's fairly new. I don't know if anyone's really been on it for 50, 60 years. I'm also probably one of the younger people in, in University of Penn Cancer Center. But I also was like, I don't want that. Like, we got to figure out someone who's going to go in and take this out. So I switch over from chemo to immunotherapy. I think at the time the FDA had not approved immunotherapy as like a first treatment. You had to do something else first. So I did the chemo, did the immunotherapy and that uh, off the jump was great. Like I felt good. I bought a bike. I was riding my bike. felt like I was doing pretty well. And then things just changed roughly like that Thanksgiving. I remember I came home and immediately threw up and I hadn't eaten a lot. And I was still like, I looked like I was in okay shape. I actually had started going to the gym, like walking and, uh, immediately I'm thrown up, thrown up nonstop. I think over the course of three weeks, I think like looking back at it, I was 237 pounds. I had an appointment because immunotherapy was every three weeks. 
two days before it, I stepped on the scale at my brother's house and I was 194 pounds. And I was like, all right, quick math. That's over 40 pounds in three weeks. And and it was the first time I looked in the mirror and I was like, I look like an actor in a movie who's like a prisoner of war or something like that. Like drawn out, my face looked horrible. And I was just like, all right, this, I'm a cancer patient now. Like it was the first time I really believed it. Called my brother and I was like, hey, you got to pick me up. Like, I think I might die today. Took me to the hospital. They do emergency scans. One side effect of immunotherapy is it can actually swell your tumor. So I had a full uh, intestinal blockage. So while I think I'm just like sick, it's my intestines have been closed for three weeks diagnosed with severe protein malnourishment. So I'm on bags of our IV bags, nonstop, can't eat anything. I'm thrown up, you know, 10 times in the hospital. Luckily, UPenn has like the nicest new hospital. So it's like, I'm in a suite. I'm just super sick. And then the surgeon came in. There's, I'll butcher the name, but it's like your duodenum and your jejunum. They can kind of bend it, cut a new hole through it. And now you have functioning intestines. And, you know, this whole area is no longer used. So they do that and I'm kind of back eating. I'm fine. I'm on a liquid diet for a little while, but then it seems like I'm back to normal and I'm just back on immunotherapy. So they got it out. No, they didn't get it out. Just a new hole. So where the actual tumor was, I guess it was too close to some major blood vessels or something like that, where they thought at the time, like surgery, like there's a high risk I die. So they essentially bypassed and... Exactly. I remember the surgeon drew it on a piece of paper, but it's like, if you kink a hose and instead of mm -hmm. unwrapping it, he's like, you just cut where it's kinked and then, you, you know, you go back to normal. So... So there you really listen to your body. Yeah. Do you think the kind of previous experience of having that little voice in the back of your head, like, all right, something's wrong, but I'm working a lot. You know, we can rationalize anything. <laughs> you know, we're humans. We can rationalize anything away. Swollen ankle, so on and so forth. You were kind of just, but with this point, it seems like, or this experience, it seems like you knew that you needed to actually act this time. Uh, and thank God that you did. Yeah. I, I learned my lesson on that. So if I wake up with a headache now, I'm like, do I need to go to the doctor? Like, is this just a headache? Am I dehydrated? So yeah, I'm definitely now like have a portal where I can message like my nurse practitioner, Abby, and like ask her the most random questions. But I'm like, do I need to come in for this? And I'm like, I just got to ask. Like peace of mind is, is worth a lot to me now. It's interesting you say that because, you know, all three of us as young adults have had cancer and you said, I've said it in the past too, like never, I wouldn't say I was lucky to get cancer. I don't think anyone has ever said that in the world. What happens after it has opened so many doors for me, but also one thing that I think, you know, the three of us on here can realize is it makes us really in tune with our bodies moving forward. And there are things that we don't, it's not a paranoia, but it's a gift in that it allows us to be present and know that something might be wrong and it's better to reach out and ask the questions than to kind of just push it down Absolutely. and think maybe, you know, maybe it'll just go away yeah. or maybe it's not that thing. And then to carry that for as long as we have to can be a little bit of a burden, but sometimes I look at it like, thank God I have that burden. And it's a little, you know, it's that little voice in our ear that says, maybe you should call the doctor. Maybe you should go. No, I completely agree with you on that. How are you feeling now? Feel good. I wouldn't say I feel great. I think I measure it to uh, to pre-cancer, but I'm also, you know, a lot older than that now. So I feel lucky, I would say, number one. So just to kind of wrap that up. So 
from going while I was incurable, had that surgery, things get better. I actually make like a major job change. I, I, I leave the company I'm at, go to a new one. And I'm kind of just like, all right, like I'm just gonna have cancer the rest of my life, work through it, rebuild my career, start fresh. Part of that I wanted to leave because I was like, I'm now defined by cancer at this old company. Let me start fresh. Pretty much like two or three months into this new company, it's the first time I have to present in front of my director, our general manager, the full team. I go for a run that morning in Delaware. As I'm running, I feel like kind of like a pop in my stomach. And I'm like, all right, that's not right. Get back to my hotel room. This is probably 40 minutes before I have to present. I look in the mirror and it looks like there's like a grapefruit directly over where I had the incision from that surgery. And I'm like, all right, this is not good. So I kind of like push it back in and I'm like, I got to get this presentation over with and, and do it. Like, I'm like, you'll do fine that's, in a boxing ring. That's like, fantastic. There's probably 10 people in this room. And I think at the time, like four knew I had cancer. The rest I'd only met a few times. So I get through the presentation. I get back again. I'm, you know, message the hospital. I was like, I need to come in, go to the hospital. The surgeon walks in quickly, like touches my stomach. He's like, you have a quarter size, like hole. He's like, you need like emergency hernia surgery. Oh, wow. Great. So my director, who's amazing, but I've only known her for three months now. Mm. I'm like, Hey, I need to go out of work to get this surgery. And the best thing that ever happened. So I go over and they're like, listen, like, we don't know if we can do the surgery, but we have to open you up to fix the hernia. Like, we're going to take a look and see, like, if we can be aggressive, we're going to try to take it out. So I was like, go for it. So I went in and, and this is the end of, this is August 22, like the last week of August. I take a couple of days off work. I literally had just started there. I, I think that June go in for surgery, wake up. And I don't even really know what's going on. I'm so out of it. You know, I have like an eight or nine inch incision down my stomach, a pump out the side. And I'm like, I hope they took it out. And, and they kind of explained what they did. Took eight inches of intestines, like a huge chunk of my stomach wall. Turned out, I think it was 47 lymph nodes they took out, waited for the pathology to come back. And they had the whole tumor out. They tested all the lymph nodes. Some had shown that there was cancer in it, but it was all dead. Same within the tumor. And then they're like, yeah, like we think it's out. And uh, then I kind of went into like the surveillance phase, came off immunotherapy. And uh, I just like two months ago hit 14 months where I went through scans with no reoccurrence. So without that surgery, I'd probably still sitting here on immunotherapy, still at least thinking I had cancer, not knowing if it was completely gone. But um, yeah, by uh, on the 5th, I'll go back. It'll be my 17 months. So as long as I clear that, I'll really be fighting in haymakers just short of two years, about 18, 19 months, um, cancer-free. So wow. kind of my way of celebrating it. That is really incredible. And for lack of a better, just like a miracle. I mean, your story is really powerful. Just, I'm really speechless, honestly. That's insane. That whole story is just absolutely bananas. It's definitely wild when I go back or explain it to people. And with that second surgery too, it's kind of how my whole new company found out. Mm. We had a, a work meeting that involved a whitewater rafting trip, which I would have loved to be on. But I'm like, yeah, I just got surgery like three weeks ago. Like I can't do this. And that's how I started to, to introduce it to everyone who didn't already know, which amazingly supportive company and have, have met also some other cancer survivors. And then, you know, like I said, Chris Trott, who, who had fought in this, not a cancer survivor, but but he did this and and have since found out another guy, Chris Guarda, who fought, I think, in one of the DC fights years ago. 
work with him as well. So everyone's been super supportive, you know, as I kind of went through all that and definitely wasn't myself for a while, but, you know, closing on a year and a half now, um, it's been good. It's been good. That's a great, that's a great way to, yeah, you know, it's been good. (laughs) That is an amazing, amazing story. So you are right now, you're almost two years out. That has got to feel, it's still, I remember when I was two years out and Julie, I'm sure you remember these times too, of just, it's a lot of testing in the beginning and going back. Mm -hmm. And then you start to get less and less time with the doctors and at the hospital. So how are you finding life here now, your life post-treatment in that sort of in-between going back to a fully, yes, relatively speaking, as it can be a normal life? Yeah, I would say definitely feel like things are, are getting, uh, more normal. I've definitely just made a, a lot of different changes in my life. I think partly just from, from getting older. But what are some I, of those changes? You know, out of college, I bartended the first, you know, six years. So I was, you know, drinking alcohol five, six nights a week and, and staying up late and, and, and partying and having fun. I grew up just outside of Atlantic City with two brothers. So I think, you know, you can definitely put fun ahead of a lot of things. But yeah, I'd say like I prioritize my health. So whether it's, you know, sitting in the sauna five or six times a week, ice baths. My diet is, is pretty targeted. I mean, people joke, but if you look at like my supplement cabinet and what food I eat, they're like, you should be ripped with the six pack. And I'm like, this. And I'm just trying not to get cancer again. Like I'd love if that happens, but I've always been big, but yeah, just trying to, to do the right things just to make sure I stay healthy, stay on top of things. I think, you know, I hate being hung over because it's like, I kind of feel like I'm on chemo again, or am I getting sick? And then just challenging myself with new things. Just, uh, I think Julie actually was a podcast. You had mentioned it, but I try to do something hard almost every day to be like, if I was sick again, there's no way I could do this. So running the marathon was kind of my first big one. I I told myself every year I'm going to do something that I might not have done before. So through work, we had a trip to Hawaii. I no cage dove with sharks, which wasn't like an athletic achievement, but I was pretty darn scared. Ran the Philly marathon and it timed up perfectly with this, but you know, if I can be up at 6 a.m. And, and go through a boxing workout, turn around, go to the gym real quick, work a full day, and maybe go back and then go sit in a sauna, it's like pretty hard to tell me that I have cancer coming back if that's happening. So that that's just some of the lifestyle things I like to do, at least to mentally tell myself I'm good. Yeah, about doing hard things and challenging yourself or doing something that's scary, the way I kind of look at it is I don't have to do it. I get to do it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm lucky I get to do it. Tomorrow is uh, we're hosting a, like a polar plunge up here for um, we're fundraising for a nonprofit for um, pediatric cancer. It's probably going to be about 15 degrees in the air and the waters are going to be about 43. And I just am like, you know what? I get to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're doing it for a little girl who unfortunately passed away um, in June. And we get to do this. We don't have to do it. We get to do it. And it's hard and it's scary. And I'm probably going to curse myself (laughs) for about 20 minutes before and after. But, you know, that's why sometimes it's good to challenge yourself. That's in to scare, to be scared or to do something extra hard. Absolutely. But with boxing, I mean, boxing does not sound like it's going to be the scariest thing you've ever done. After what you've been through. No, I'm not scared of the boxing part. I'm I'm maybe scared if I do lose in a rough fashion that my colleagues and family will be there and I got to hear about it for the rest of my life. But I get to enjoy the rest of my life. So I'll take that. Mm -hmm. Great way to put that. Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell is presented by Haymakers for Hope. 
did you know there's more to haymakers than just boxing? We also have opportunities for you to lace up your sneakers and run a marathon with Team Haymakers. Or grab your clubs and play in one of our golf tournaments. Visit haymakersforhope.org for more. Round three. So let's bring it back to a little bit about what's next for you in terms of, we'll look back at Haymakers. So coming up for you very soon is going to be Media Day. Some of you might already know, but Media Day is a type of halfway point where everyone gets matched up and then you meet your opponent and you do two rounds of boxing with them just to make sure that it's going to be a fair and well-matched bout. You also do, there's videos and there's all sorts of really, really fun, very cool stations. So what has, have you guys talked about Media Day? What's on your mind about Media Day? Yeah, we've talked about a little bit, just kind of what it is. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Media Day, looking forward to, to kind of putting a face to who I'm going to be going against. In, you know, a month and a half, I might have a different opinion if, uh, you know, he walks out and he's, you know, some beast, but it's going to be fun. Like I got to fight somebody, whether I know who it is or not, someone doing the same thing I am, someone raising money for cancer the same way I am. So it's going to be super exciting. I think kind of looking at it like football, which was the sport that I did play. So you go through camp and it gets tiring. Like you're playing with your team and you love those people, but you want to see the other team because then it becomes real. So I would say that's really going to be like the, uh, the kick in the butt, not already working hard now, but I want to know and see, you know, this other guy who's, you know, similar height, weight, and hopefully similar skill level to me, you know, what he looks like, you know, have that spar. And then, uh, yeah, I think that's when, I don't want to say that's when fight camp starts, but in my head, that's when fight camp really starts. And, uh, yeah, it'll be fun. And I think the media day stuff's going to be awesome just to send out and, you know, what I put on LinkedIn or social media, things like that looks great, but I'm not a media guy myself. I, I have zero marketing background. So it'd be nice to see. I, I've seen some of the, the prior Haymakers for Hope stuff. And it's great. It's like super high quality. And uh, I think it'd be really cool to have all that done. I've never done like an individual sport. So I've had some cool media or highlight tapes where, you know, I got 10 of my buddies in it with me. You're not really focusing on me. Like I said, as a defensive lineman, my highlights are not exciting. So it'd be cool to see some stuff with just me on it. And what if he comes out wearing a spider with needles t-shirt? Would that be, would that throw you off at all? <sighs> throw me off, but yeah, I don't know. Definitely be, be down to fight him because We'll be such different people. That there be you good go. Good answer. Yeah, I wouldn't be too worried. You've already fought a pretty, uh, pretty big opponent. So I think you're you seem to handle whatever gets tossed at you. So I think you're just going to, you're going to do just fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for it. And like I had said before, I grew up with, uh, with two brothers. The youngest was a, a middle linebacker in college. The oldest is bigger than I am. So I've had big guys roughing me up my whole life. So this isn't going to be something new and it'll be fun. It'll be a cool experience. So fight night, it is going to be on April 24th at the Fillmore Philadelphia. What are you looking forward to the most about event night? I think I'm looking forward to quite a bit about it. First is leading off the Fillmore is so close to where I live right now. So it's like I get to be a part of this amazing event right in my neighborhood. It was just at the Fillmore for a work event not too long ago. So it's, you know, somewhere I've been a bunch. Um, then just seeing like the whole turnout, the whole production will be super cool. I mean, I think there's close to 30 of us fighting. So all the friends and family with that, it's going to be really cool. Just like, you know, 
a football game where you see, you know, all the people's parents and friends and things like that. And then I'm going to try to watch some of the fights. I personally like boxing. I think it's pretty cool, but yeah, I've watched some highlights of the, the, the previous ones. The production looks great. I think it's uh, like anything. It's where this all comes together. It's all the different gyms, all the different pieces get to kind of see what we've all been working on. So overall, I think it's going to be a super exciting night. It's the day after my brother's birthday. That's pretty cool. He can come watch. It's also my dad's a huge supporter of, you know, me and my brother's athletics. We're all kind of aged out. We're not NFL guys by any means. We picked the sport you can't keep playing after college. So might be my dad's last chance to see one of his sons compete. So I'm super excited to have him there. 100% why I need to win because I can't, you know, end on a loss. I think I finished my college career with a win. Hopefully might have to fact check that. But um, <laughs> yeah, overall, super excited. Do you think you'll view this a little bit as maybe like part of a healing journey, like a milestone? Like, I mean, to only be two years, not even two years out and to be stepping in the ring is, is just amazing. Yeah. I think the way I look at it too, it's like, I want to have like kind of a a staple moving forward every year, kind of define it by something I really challenged myself with. So I can look back 2023 Philly marathon, miss my goal by 12 minutes. So I'll remember that just as much as I remember the marathon, but 2024, probably my one and only boxing match I'll ever do. I say that, but if I do lose, I don't think I'll be able to have an 0 and one record for my life. So maybe do another one, but would love to go one and oh, and then, uh, you know, maybe just keep boxing for the fitness part of it. But yeah, I always remember this, but yeah, I'll hit two years cancer free this year too. So one in the same, if I can go through this, get a win and then close out two years, statistically, if you, you know, go through two years without reoccurrence, I think you're at a much better chance of at least that cancer not coming back. So big year for me, hundred percent. But, uh, then get to turn around and then donate some money to, uh, you know, a cause that probably helps a guy like me or someone who didn't go into cancer, maybe in as good of a situation. So feel really cool and really awesome about that. Is there a specific charity that you are fundraising for? Yeah, I haven't picked it yet, but definitely um, something maybe related to Lynch syndrome. Because I know there's a lot of those. And then there's also a, uh, a group that's a 501c3, I think. Um it's called Man Up to Cancer. It's actually a, a group that I was suggested to join that does a lot. But it's it's, it's most, mostly men. They have a Facebook group. I was never a Facebook guy as far as like getting on groups, chatting. I downloaded Facebook specifically to join this. And it's really like a great sounding board where people can talk, ask different questions. That's why it was a huge resource for me. Could be like, hey, I can't feel my stomach three weeks out of the surgery. Anyone else do this? 50 comments like, hey, it'll come back in six months. You'll be all right. So I know they're a possibility. Um, Like I said, Lynch syndrome, because even if I don't have cancer, I have a really darn good chance of getting cancer again. So I'd love to, you know, see if if, if there's a a charity or or a group that I could donate there. Then if I don't decide on one, I know it's um, Alex's Lemonade Stand. Mm -hmm. I think it's who Philly goes to, which they actually, I just played in a golf outing for them not too long ago through work. And I know they have a lot that goes towards immunotherapy research through their group. I actually randomly have their bracelet on since the golf outing. I think this was like, because I paid to try to get the hole in one, which I did not come close to doing. But yeah, so I know the money's going to go to a good place. Look, how do you live with the idea kind of hanging over your head that you could get cancer again? At that point, I mean, I could get hit by a car. I live in Philadelphia. There's a lot of bad things that could happen to me here. I would say with that, it's definitely a driver just to make sure like 
doing all the right things to lower that chance. So I'm a Andrew Huberman or Peter Atia, these doctors, longevity specialists, things like that. Just making sure like if I have it coming back, I'll make sure that, you know, I am catching it as early as possible. I've already had a colonoscopy with a polyp taken out that test that was precancerous. So I know it's in me. I know it wants to come back, but I'm going to do everything to make sure it doesn't. Going back to the Lynn syndrome, I have two brothers. One's negative, one's positive. You know, at that point, him and I are in the same boat. So just making sure we're doing the right things. He actually just started boxing like two weeks ago. So I'm going to push him to do haymakers next year. Oh, nice. Um, definitely. And, and uh, yeah, I think, like I said, just doing the right things and kind of taking a holistic approach. If there's something out there that says it lowers your chance of cancer by 1%, it's probably in my cabinet right now. So at that point, I can't control everything, but I can control the controllables, I guess. And look, for either your brother or for someone listening right now, someone that's thinking about embarking on this four-month journey that you're on, uh, they're thinking about doing the fight, what one piece of advice would you give them? Honestly, just do it. Like, it sounds corny, but why not? If you're going to be nervous or scared of something for six months, but then have the coolest thing to talk about for the next 50 years... Like when I was super sick, I remember like laying in a hospital bed and being like, there's so many things I never did. Like if I die at 31, like what do I really have to hang my hat on? I played division three football and lost three championships. Don't even have a ring. Like don't have kids, not married. So it's like do something great. And it's like the coolest thing. I just ran the marathon, which was awesome, but that was just for me. And then it kind of disappears where I'm not a runner, like someone who does run, that probably means a lot, but like boxing, there's like a finite winner or loser. It's something that 99% of us will never do. I mean, I don't know a ton about boxing, but anyone can go sign up for a marathon. My brother signed up on three weeks notice and ran it. It was super awesome to do it with him. Granted, I beat him by like three hours, but <laughs> not everyone can go box. Like I, I know personally, I'm not going to go drop into like a Philadelphia amateur boxing fight and have any chance of doing it correctly, win or lose, where he makes your hope you get to fight in front of 2000 people at like a legit venue in a major city. Like that's an amazing opportunity. And, and like you said before, you get to do all that, have this awesome personal thing. They pay or you all pay for the gym itself to, to train us and then turn around and give all this money to a cancer research or awareness or things like that. So kind of a, a no-brainer. If you'd like to support Luke, you can purchase tickets when they go on sale, which is Tuesday, February 27th. Event night is Wednesday, April 24th. Come out and support Luke. It's going to be a great night. We're going to have about 32 people step in the ring, all first-time amateur boxers. Luke, thank you so much for sharing your story. When you shared the start of things, I got the chills just listening to your story and knowing where you've been and, and where you've come from and where you are right now is inspiring. And I cannot wait to see you get in the ring on event night and knowing that your dad and your brothers are going to be there cheering you on, I think is going to be pretty, pretty amazing. No, absolutely. And again, appreciate you both having me. It was great to talk to you guys and looking forward to, uh, to April 24th. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We're grateful for your support. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow the podcast and tell a friend. To donate, sponsor, attend an event, or better yet, sign up to fight to KO cancer, visit haymakersforhope.org. 
Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell is presented and produced by Haymakers for Hope in partnership with Studio Pod Media. Our producers are former fighters Jordan McMillan and Julian Lewis. I'm Julie Kelly. And I'm Todd Buster Paris. You've been listening to Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell. 